Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Hearing. In honor of Pride Month, this episode features LGBTQ plus audiologists. We'll begin by highlighting each panelist's expertise and contributions to our profession, followed by a discussion on the experience of the out audiologist, how our identities have shaped our careers thus far, and the unique challenges one may face. I'm your host today, Kathleen Wallace, a New York City-based audiologist working clinically in an ENT setting, virtually at Tuned. I teach at the CUNY Graduate Center, and I recently started dabbling in social media with my new educational TikTok called the EarDoc of TikTok. I live in Brooklyn with my wife, our son, and our dog. And now I'd like to introduce our five wonderful panelists that we have today. Cassie Fuller is an industry audiologist based out of Chatham, New York. She currently works as a clinical education specialist serving New England, downstate New York, and New Jersey. She identifies as a lesbian and lives with her wife and rescue dog. Jonathan Newcomb is a research audiologist based in New York City. He works in the Laboratory for Translational Auditory Research at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine focusing on the adaptation process after cochlear implantation. In addition, he is an adjunct assistant professor at the CUNY Graduate Center. Jonathan identifies as a gay man and lives with his partner, Sebastian, their 19-year-old cat, and two West Highland Terriers. Henry Botsum is an industry audiologist based in Massachusetts. He currently works as a regional sales manager for New England in the hearing aid industry, following his work as lead clinical audiologist at Berkshire Medical Center in Western Massachusetts. Henry is active in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging advocacy, presenting at national and regional conferences, and serves on the DEIB and membership committees for AAA and as the vice president of clinical practice for the Massachusetts Speech and Hearing Association. In addition to audiology, Henry holds advanced degrees in music performance. Dawn Flynn is an audiologist based in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is the owner of Ear Everything, where she specializes in hearing conservation programs in motorsport. For the last 22 years, Dawn has worked with individual drivers, crew, safety staff, photographers, and media, as well as their families. In addition, she works as a contractor in industrial settings and with musicians for hearing protection and education. And lastly, Kyle Langfitt is a clinical audiologist based in Indiana. He works clinically at a mid-sized hospital in rural Indiana with interest in electrophysiology and cochlear implantation. Prior to becoming an audiologist, Kyle worked for nearly a decade as an American Sign Language, language interpreter. In his free time, he likes to explore new hiking trails and try new recipes. So thank you all for joining me today. Um, I would first like to just start with, um, you know, commenting on how eclectic of a group we are. You know, we have five, five guests here. We have two industry, one owner, one person in research and academia, one person that is working clinically. Uh, so this is really giving a nice varied um, perspective of audiology. So I'd first like to sort of dive a little deeper into each of your backgrounds and your specific work um, and really explore that space. So, so Dawn, if you don't mind, if we start with you, your work is obviously very niche. Um, you are probably the leading voice in motorsport hearing protection uh, in the United States and, and largely 
um, and hearing protection in general. Um, and how did you essentially get into it? What's the, what's the backstory there? It was either a really big mistake or a really lucky moment to be in. I was actually bartending to supplement starting a business for the purpose of musicians hearing protection. And a young lady walked into the bar and she asked me what I was doing. And so I explained the, the, the concept of hearing conservation and she thought outside the box. She said, that sounds like it would work in racing. And I told her I didn't know anybody in racing. And she passed my name on to two people. And in less than six months, I was sitting in front of people like Michael Andretti and Dario Franchitti and Al Unser Sr. And I was working with the IndyCar technical team and we make an earpiece special for the race car drivers that has a tri-axle accelerometer in each earpiece along with a speech transducer so they can have communication. There was no standard before. There still is no standard. That's what I'm fighting for. They give them a number to tell them their helmet's the right one. They give them a number to tell them their fire suit's the right one. And nobody educates them on why an earpiece should function as a hearing protector first and foremost and allow you to listen at lower volume levels, extend your safe listening time. So when they wanted me to do the earpiece with the sensor in it, um, I think I said the most important sentence in my home entire life, if we're gonna give them something, we should validate that it is a hearing protector. I would like to protect, or I'd like to evaluate their hearing on an annual basis and make sure that we're not seeing any changes and that we're validating that it fits well, rather than them complaining, they're race car drivers, so they complain about everything, but I don't want them to ignore it and just turn volume up because there's no limiter on the volume going in. So we have to teach them how to be smarter. So, so you were in Indianapolis already and then turned into a motorsport professional. You didn't yeah. move to Indianapolis for that purpose. Interesting. No. And any experience before you got there? Had you ever, are you a race car fan enthusiast? No. And you New Yorkers might appreciate this. All, all the only racing I knew were the Italian kids racing their IROC on Deer Park Avenue. That's the, that's my line. That's my line because that's all we knew. Nobody was a race car driver. When I was going to high school, we heard about the straight line racing out in Ronkonkoma, but nobody did it. Mm -hmm. Nobody I knew. And here it's the largest single day sporting event in the world. And I get to, I get to be responsible for their, their years. So. And you've been doing it for, for 22 years now. Is that correct? 22 years. And finally, we're going to write a paper. I'm saying it out loud to an official group of audiologists. Um, it's gotten pinned a couple of times because I am not the research audiologist, but I have 22 years of hearing test data that needs to be organized. And the IU School of Medicine has shown interest. They've agreed to work with me on this because I think it needs to be said. I think we need to put something out there. I'm just not a trained research audiologist and being a single person business, quite bluntly, I've been making sure food's on my table so that I can keep going. So. I guess that's that's the hindrance of being the owner operator. Mm -hmm. So you are the sole provider for this, 
And do you have any other employees or you're the sole employee of this operation? Kind of ridiculous. I am the only person. Keeping NASCAR afloat. Well, IndyCar, IndyCar mostly, and then the IMSA, the International Motorsports Association. And then there are people involved in those. The cool stuff is that there's people involved in all of those series in, in little niche ways too. There's concussion people, there's people that measure their bones. And so some of this stuff has the, the potential for collaboration. Uh, there was a gentleman doing some science about how the sound hits them and where, and, and they test their helmets. Of course, they don't have very much hel- uh, hearing protection, the helmets, but they try and I don't know how valid their research is on that either, to be quite honest with you, but mm-hmm. so. So we'll come back for a little bit more because there's a whole lot more to talk about with hearing protection. That obviously is a, a whole future direction for audiology that perhaps we need to prioritize more. Um, for now, let me just jump over to um, Kyle. So you have a very specific background as an American Sign Language interpreter um, for about 10 years. And how often do you think that comes in handy for your clinical care? And do you think it should be essential for audiologists to know? Uh, yeah, this is interesting question because I was first a member of the deaf community. So I kind of learned their perspective and their views on audiology as a profession. Um, and it was never painted in a good light. So that's kind of the mindset that I, I, I assumed that my culture was teaching me that, therefore it must be true. Um, so I decided to do something about it. And then I went to Gallaudet University and I learned a whole lot, the whole other side of the coin. Um, so I think that right now, audiologists that are trained in these universities are only getting that side of the coin, but not getting the perspective that I had. And I think it would definitely um, bring compassion to the the clinic. So I absolutely do think that it should be a part of every, you know, audiology education. I've like thought about some small business ideas where I could create a class or a master class or something like that to provide to these students. But I just graduated. This was my first job. I thought I, maybe I should take it slow, um, kind of get the clinic, get my reins in, and then kind of explore that. But there's definitely a, a need there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your, so your shift into audiology was also very intentional, right? You had 10 years mm-hmm. work experience and has audiology, um, is it what you imagined it would be um, based off of your experience? I think sometimes people have a, a certain conception, the concept of audiology of what it will be and that we are working primarily with the, the deaf community when that isn't always the case. Um, yeah. What has your experience been so far? Yeah, actually, it's interesting that I used to like I would know the, the phrase that deafness is an, it's like a small incidence disability. And I, I could spout that anywhere. And I didn't really internalize that until I entered audiology. And I thought, wow, there are a lot more people who, you know, they get by just fine in quiet environments. But as soon as there's background noise, that's where they have trouble. And that's a whole different aspect of hearing loss. Um, so, but in a way I do find that there are similarities. And then just jumping up to Jonathan, I'm going based off of how I see it on my screen, um, and moving away from the in-person clinical experience into both the classroom and, uh, the research environment. You've now been at NYU for 
a good stretch here. Um, and with the, the CUNY Graduate Center, um, did you always envision it was going to be research audiology? No, no. I, you know, I went to Indiana University. I went to IU and I, I worked with Chinchillas um, a little bit there with Bill Schaffner. And, um, you know, I ended up doing my fourth year in a hybrid clinical research. So I, I always liked research and I liked learning. Um, if I could go get degrees the rest of my life, I would. Um, and I did a little bit of clinical work before I came. I went to intraoperative monitoring before I came into NYU. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, you know, just serendipitous. I've always wanted to work with cochlear implants, always from the beginning of my audiology stretch. Um, I just thought they were the coolest thing ever. No offense to hearing aids, but I didn't like hearing aids. I just thought cochlear implants are, are really it. And, um, you know, a, an, an old research friend of mine saw the ad at NYU and said, you know, it looks like they're looking for somebody exactly like you. And it's true. It really was. Um, you know, we have a, an amazing team. And, um, you know, it's not that I haven't had opportunities to switch into clinical, but I see my value in research. And, and I do interact with patients just on a different level. Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to not be their clinician. Um, and it's nice to be kind of actually like the back, you know, the back end man that can get a lot of things done for them that otherwise wouldn't happen. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's where I'm at. And how has cochlear implants changed in your career so far? Well, criterion are loosening constantly. I mean, I don't know. I could talk about this all day. It's like, you know, we don't see unilateral implants anymore because we allow residual hearing. And then, you know, the whole, the whole aspect of there's single-sided deafness um, implantees now. And the push right now is residual hearing, whether or not that's useful or not, we don't know yet. But, you know, preserving hearing in the implant ear is, is kind of a big thing. Um, but, you know, implants have you know, the devices themselves have really reached like great potential. And I don't know that we can keep making the device better. It's that we can change the approach to the electrode. Um, and we may, we may be able to, you know, I do do some cognitive research at NYU and we may be able to kind of hone in on what it is that makes a bad performer, a bad performer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how it keeps changing. Mm -hmm. Plenty of research questions to answer. You'll be employed for it mm -hmm. as long as you want to be employed. Um, and then Cassie, just shifting over to you, what was your thought process between the, the shift from going into um, the industry side of things? Um, and do you miss clinical interactions? You're still in clinics to some capacity, um, but how are you liking the niche that you are in so far? So I went into this hoping that I would someday reach the industry side. Um, I had started out wanting to be in interoperative monitoring, ended up falling in love with hearing aids and, um, you know, really kind of getting to know a little bit more about the industry side and knowing that's the path that I wanted to take. So um, I work more on the education side. 
Um, so I do a lot of training, a lot of teaching, which is really my favorite thing to do is, is to teach and present. And, um, you know, I love the education piece of it, but half of what I do is also still seeing patients. Um, I always joke that, uh, you know, I have to keep telling myself that most patients are very happy with their hearing aids, but 100% of the patients that I see tend to be unhappy with them. So, um, but I love the challenge of going in and seeing those difficult patients that are having issues and um, learning from them and learning from the people that I work with and, and doing some problem solving with that. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really been a great, uh, great transit transition. And I love the travel too. I actually really do enjoy the travel of, of everything and seeing the country and working with lots of teams on a, on a global team and on the U S team. And, um, you know, you really get a lot of variety on the industry side. Yeah. And, um, I imagine you and, and Henry both working for industry side, um, the fact that you have touch points at so many different clinics probably gives you a very good glimpse into the world of audiology. You probably have a very good pulse, at least both of you at a minimum, the Northeast. Um, so that will um, certainly I'd like to circle back to that. Um, Henry, your uh, background in music, I actually share a similar background. I'm also a music major. Um where did that transition come of going from music and was that the plan all along to go music into audiology or was there, um, how did this happen? You know, I still not sure. Uh, I, you know, did music for a while, uh, played the tuba. And so when you play the tuba, it turns out there's not a lot of job opportunities unless you're like really, really, really good. And so I got through, you know, masters and it was like, next step is a DMA, a doctorate. And it was like, Based on the way everything's going, that doesn't seem fun. So I took some time off. I started working around, you know, and kind of realized, kind of done with music. I don't really want that to be, you know, my day job. And as any good millennial does, you listen to podcasts. And uh, hello, I'm dream come true now. Um, <laughs> and I heard on like NPR, audiology, great work-life balance. And so I was like, you know what? That seems fun. I looked into it. You don't need necessarily any prerequisites. My music degree would get me there. I applied and I was like, it makes sense, sound, music, like let's do this. And so um, they accepted me in and, and kind of going from there. I, I have a very similar path. I, I was not tuba, I was trombone. Um, but the the understanding of sound really does um, blend itself, obviously, to audiology. The, the acoustics class at a minimum uh, certainly comes a little easier. Um, and then Cassie and Henry, both of you, what do you think are misconceptions of the industry side of audiology? Are there any? Interesting question. So I've been in industry for uh, almost three years. Um, I would say, you know, we, we, at least from, from my perspective and the work that I do, we really do have, you know, the audiologists at heart um, and their patients at heart and, you know, their hearing care providers. Um, we do think about the future of the industry and we do what we can to preserve that and do the right thing. Yeah. And to echo that, I mean, I haven't been in there nearly as long as Cassie. It's only been about three months for me. For me, it felt like I was kind of going to the dark side. It was a little like scary, especially I went to a very um, heavy, like ivory tower type type school it seemed like and so to kind of come from that and be like a sellout to the industry I felt 
you know, a little apprehensive, but then I kind of realized as you hit on, like, we are the people spreading the information to the audiologists. We are the one training them. And without us, we can't impact our patients. And so it really helps me, like one of my, you know, core values was to be able to elevate audiology. And by being able to access that many people, I can therefore elevate audiology. So it really, I think, paired well, but it was one of those that I was a little, I was a little scared at first and we're going to find out and see how it works, but hopefully it works out well. So far, so good. Um, and then I just want to pose a few questions to, to all of you uh, about the, the current state of audiology. Um, what is your view of where we're at? It seems that uh, to a certain extent that audiology is at a crossroads um, of, you know, are we a rehabilitative field? Are we a device driven field? Are we are we going to keep fighting insurance? Are we going to expand our scope of practice? There's a lot of big questions. Um, so what are your takes on uh, the current state of audiology? Some, the, what are the challenges right now? What are the biggest opportunities in your mind? Um, and uh, Dawn, you want to chime in first? So I think the biggest opportunities are things like tuned that's coming up, uh, the access to the patients, the all of the wearables, everybody wears something now in their ears and it is cool. So the stigma is kind of gone. So I think that we can really maximize that potential and, and make it sciencey for people, health driven instead of just electronic gimmicky given. And then the state of it, I, I just, I'm glad to see that hearing aids, right? We read our hearing review, you know, the the, the market is so flat for so long. So I'm sorry that we had the pandemic, but I'm glad that it improved people's perception of some of the hearing aids, right? And I think they get better and better, but I don't think they solve everything. So getting people to understand that they have to do more, I think is also becoming easier and easier. So. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan, what do you think? Um. You know, I, I'm so far removed from, from hearing aids and in some ways I, I, you know, I kind of love that, but, um, because I know, you know, CIs are insurance covered and we don't necessarily think about that stuff. Um, you know, I think the technology that has came out on the market, all these OTC stuff, you know, I am all for access. Like, I just love the fact that somebody doesn't have to spend so much money, someone with, let's say, a mild hearing loss or mild to moderate that can go out and get a device that will help them. Um, and it also may help them in the future, just overcome the issue of going further. But, you know, I had a very, very long meeting with uh, some, a bit, we had a huge meeting today. Um, and talking about just like penetration of the CIs, because this is always a big topic. And um, I don't think it's audiologists anymore that aren't referring hearing aid patients to CIs, that it's, um, you know, it's a very complex problem that, you know, I think that patients themselves have bad perceptions of CIs and, um, you know, you know, there's plenty of people out there that are CI candidates that are still not getting them for sure. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and for whatever reason, I don't know, but, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess in my, in my mind, CIs are not going to go anywhere at all. They're just going to keep expanding, but hearing aids, I don't know, you know? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Henry, any thoughts? I mean, 
for me, I think a lot of it comes into the education of audiology. That's what's been produced and what is being produced. And we can talk about a whole host of issues. And I think it comes down to what are what's going on at the graduate school level. Um, so I could probably go on for far too long about that side of things. And in in general, I think having been in music, there's a lot of pessimism in audiology. And it's like, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, we can't do real ear because it's so expensive. And it's a 10,000 piece of, of equipment, like dollar piece of equipment. Like my tuba costs more than that. Like, and I was expected to have that, two of them for undergrad. Like, you know, it, let's like compare the apples to oranges, you know, here, or apples to apples. Or like um, for education, you have to get a master's and a, a DMA and be able to do music in university setting and here we go you know two years less in the masters and it's like you know i understand it's more expensive and all that but there's a lot of other people in the same boat so like let's be optimistic and like hey we actually have a decent paying job we have a good work-life balance and we are actually helping people there's a lot of issues don't get me wrong but like if we had a little bit more optimism and like we can actually do this i think it would go further and aside from that a lot of it comes into gender for me and we can talk about that later. Um, but I think there's also a gender thing that not necessarily is helping or hurting, but it's, uh, we need to talk about it. In, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. And Cassie, what's your take on all this? How's so, the current state of audiology? <laughs> the current state of audiology. That's a loaded question. Um, but, but kind of going off of what Jonathan had to say, you know, talking about CIs versus hearing aids, you know, I don't know that much about CIs, but I do know hearing aids pretty well. And what I do know is that we are a service-based industry. Um, when it comes to the hearing aid side, it is heavily service-based. Um, I think personally uh, with OTCs, it can only be good for us because that's going to get a lot of people in the door. That's going to get their foot in the door. And that's one of the main problems that we have in our industry is getting people to come in earlier, um, especially those people with more mild to moderate losses. And what we do know is that with hearing aids, they need a lot of care. They need a lot of upkeep. They're difficult to, you know, take care of. Patients have, you know, if you give, you fit a patient with a hearing aid, um, you know, they're going to come in for a follow-up because they need some fine tuning because every single patient is different. Everybody has different preferences in the way that they like to hear the world around them. So um, they're eventually going to need a hearing care provider. I think that can only actually be good for us as an industry to get them in sooner um, and get them fit with, you know, something that's going to be appropriate and really help their, you know, cognitive health in the long run by fitting them sooner. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we have some really great opportunities here in the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Kyle, uh, you're the freshest out of grad school. So I am curious, yeah. what's the messaging in grad school and what's your take on this right now of, uh, you know, on the early end of your career? Ooh, that's a good question. I didn't even think about my experience in graduate school. Um, so even though I am recently detached, I think that maybe the way that I approached school didn't lend itself to a lot of the discussion about the current state of audiology. Um, I was, I'm like a very nerdy in the books kind of guy. Um, so having that conversation as like a casual thing or like getting someone else's perspective, whether it be a, a student or like a, a professor who's been in the field for a long time, kind of picking their brain, that's, I guess, maybe a missed opportunity for me. Um, 
but just like uh, the way I feel as far as a first year clinician in the clinic, I definitely see barriers to access and OTC hearing aids are the way to provide that access and circling back to the cochlear implant outcomes. Um, I wonder if people who are amplified from the very earliest when they just notice their problem or their difficulties, um, kind of like me, I have hearing loss in both ears and it's high, high pitch in nature. So I struggle on background noise and that happened during grad school. So it's kind of interesting to experience that um, communication difficulty in noisy places, but I can get along in just uh, like one-on-ones. So um, I think that I, I wonder if that experience lends itself to better outcomes down the road. Um, so I think that OTC and cochlear implants are really going to be kind of blown up in the next like 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I'm glad that we have a, a pretty optimistic group here because uh, Henry, as you pointed out, audiology can be a little pessimistic and um, it is what you make of it. And there are plenty of avenues. We just have to start exploring them, getting out of the box. And Dawn, I think you're certainly on the right track of hearing preservation and prevention has to be a huge part of the push forward as well. Um, segueing a little bit more into why we are all gathered here as LGBTQ plus audiologists, um, you can't help but notice how homogenous audiology is. We are overwhelmingly a cis, white, straight, female profession. Um, and in my book, that is not a good thing. Diversity is of value for a whole lot of reasons. And um, how can we actually improve our recruitment to audiology and um, increase that diversity? Do you all agree that it is a problem? Um, what, are, what are some of your takes on that? Yeah, so I went to my first ASHA conference um, back in November, and it was predominantly speech language pathologists who I uh, talked with. And I found a few gay uh, SLPs um, and we kind of cling to each other throughout the conference. So we went together at, and there were a couple of males. So we went to this, um, it's a caucus of male SLPs and they kind of tackle that same issue. So in my mind, I think, okay, female dominated, down to male, down to gay male. And then you kind of hit the nail on the head. Those who are kind of not cisgender or, that was very eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. Has anyone else noticed that at conferences or have any thoughts about what the effect of that homo homogeneity is in our profession? Do we need to be better at recruitment? Thinking about what the effect of, that's a good question. Sure, it has an effect. I go back, I get to go back to the university and I get to go talk to them and share with them what I've done. I think that they're most surprised that I don't like hide the secret of what I've done. The, the most significant thing that happened recently was this young lady. She was like, but it just seems like it was all luck how you got to where you got to. And I was like, but I will help you. So I think that that's really important that we have to just gay or not gay. I think that we just have to really pay attention to each other and always just bring each other up. Right. There's the optimism part and support 
Like there are patients that I deal with that someone handles their hearing aids and I handle their racing earpieces. I don't need to be in their hearing aids. Maybe there's somebody in New York. Maybe it's one of you guys that handles them. And I want to let you do what you need to do. And I just want to help them focus on this one thing. But I don't, I don't know that I answered your question about how that affects our, our homogenity. I'm not going to say the word. You say the word. <laughs> One of those words that the, the emphasis changes uh, in the different forms. I had to think about it too. So for me, you know, for thinking diversity, you know, when George Floyd incidents of 2020 happened, I think audiology had a big push of like, oh my gosh, we are all white. And it was like, well, obviously, like we could have told you that. But then they're like, well, we just have to recruit this diversity and the emphasis being on the color of a person's skin. And I remember sitting there as a student at the time and I was like, well, hey, like I am this queer person and you don't really care about me. Like, why am I going to want to recruit someone who is going to have a much harder time because their diversity is reflected on the outside, right? And it was just like, throughout all of this, it's kind of like, why are we trying to recruit people into a profession where you don't have the support already built? And I mean, for me, it's definitely multi-layered of, so I'm a trans guy. So I went through school as a female-bodied individual. And so now being on the other side of that, like I can see all of the ways in which the system was flawed in a lot of, you know, for me and also in terms of audiology. And I think just... We need the diversity because even, even taking away the color of the skin or the LGBTQ, it just makes us better. And like, you know, as a musician, it was just like, I think differently than you. And that's not a bad thing, but I think differently than you. And yet it almost felt like I was like, not supposed to be in here because I thought differently. Uh, but one of the beautiful things for me, like about LGBTQ is that it doesn't matter who you are. Like we are found in every minoritized community historically monetized like so you know if it's the color of our skin if it's religion if it's disability like disability status or whatever like you can find an lgbtq person in that and so i think that's where we've done really well in that we have gained a lot of rights quicker probably than other historically marginalized communities however that is also not necessarily being uplifted in audiology. And so, you know, I know that this is happening for me. I can't imagine what it's like for my people, well, the people of color and my colleagues on the other side of the table who haven't much worse. So yes, we need it. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we elevate the voices of the people that are in, in audiology. Um, like I think us doing this right now is really important. I remember being a young queer audiologist and being relatively closeted because I didn't know how people would react or how people would treat me. And, you know, I had an experience where a colleague had um, opened a door for me essentially to make me feel comfortable in coming out of the closet. And right then and there, I decided, you know, that that was it for me. Like, I am not going to be back in at work. I've mentioned it in every job interview that I've ever had. 
because that is something that's really important to me that I am in a safe space. I'm in an accepting space. Um, and I think that's really important for me to do that for other people as well. Um, for, you know, the other baby Cassie's out there that, you know, might have some fears going into things. Um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, a voice to help them, you know, have that, that courage and, and know that it's okay to be in this space. I'm taking it all in. Um, because, you know, I live in a bubble and I say this mm-hmm. all the time. Like I really do. And NYU is very progressive. And, you know, I am the only male audiologist at NYU. Um, and I happen to be gay, but I've never, ever once felt like out of place or anything around my immediate people. But as an industry, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I went to IU and, and it was, it was relatively, I don't know if it was an issue or maybe it was an issue for people and I didn't pick up on it. I don't know. Cause I've never not, I've never not just, honestly, I'm flamboyant. I am. And I'm, and that's, that's just who I am. Um, I, but it, you know, everybody's comments have brought me back to like these weird, I remember I interviewed once and this girl tried to basically polite girl, I shouldn't say that, but the interviewer said, you know, she was like, well, you, you have a very young face. How are you going to manage that? And I was kind of like, what are you talking about? I mean, I don't, <laughs> um, but I think she was kind of pointing at like, how do you gain respect? How do you gain rapport with people? Um, and luckily, you know, I, I landed in New York city, so mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry about it. People would be shocked if I said, you know, my wife here, right. They were, they really would, they would be freaked out and probably walk out the door. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I had, a, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague, not, you know, probably a year or two ago, just about the nature of audiologists and how, and not, you know, nobody here, but, you know, many audiologists come in, they're female, they want a protocol and they want to follow that protocol and they never want to change. And I, and that's something that keeps audiology down. It really keeps us down. And, um, you know, so I try not to teach like that, definitely. And I try to emphasize, like, get out of that box, get out of that box, um, as much as you possibly can. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about recruiting new audiologists or anything because I feel like it's a very specialized field and you have to have interest. But what really, what propels you to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. But I certainly, I hear complaints still sometimes. I, still, I hear complaints from the audio, the clinical audiologists I work with um, who are all female um, and just some of the ways that they're treated because of that, you know, and, and I, I guess I don't feel that I'm treated differently because I'm gay, but I definitely feel that I am treated sometimes differently because I'm white and I'm male. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to make that better. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's not just recruitment, as you mentioned, it's, you know, when we're in the classroom with them and the AUD training, of how we're talking about audiology. And in my mind, the more diversity there is, the more differing of opinions, as we've all sort of alluded to, the more we will think out of the box or get out of the box thinkers in there to just sort of change the status quo for audiology because it does need to move forward a bit. 
Um, but you all also touched on something interesting where um, I think there can be this sort of dilemma um, for all of us of, you know, we are obviously audiologists. That's what we do. We're also members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, are those intertwined? Are they independent in our minds? You know, does one inform the other or, you know, do you think of yourself as just an audiologist or does it actually have an effect on your, your ability to do your job um, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community? So when you say that, it, two things kind of come into my mind of, I can't remove myself from it, so yes. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, if we look at someone who's struggling and some people may not have had as much struggle in their life as others, you know, it gives that little bit of empathy to where you can really connect with them, right? And so I think that it does definitely impact that. Um, but for me, my lens is probably too far skewed in some ways on a gender spectrum. And kind of like what Kyle had said earlier, and this, this gets into the diversity of audiology, but also into how it impacts our care, is he was talking about the male speech SLPs and trying to recruit SLPs. And I got asked to be on like a male, like getting recruitment of men in ASHA. Uh, and I was at first like, well, we don't need more men in audiology. Like, why? Like, why do we care? Like, women are awesome, you know, like. And then I was like, well, you know what? Our patient base is so much broader than just women. It's so much broader than just white women. And we need to have a profession that reflects the population. And so in that regard, like me being able to relate to an LGBTQ patient helped so much, like to see them open up and I could actually like have a conversation about like, oh, your partner isn't just, you know, your roommate. And this is the struggles that you're having it just elevated their care. And so I think at the end of the day, I can't remove that because it is who I am. So the racing industry is terribly white and conservative and it is horrible and hard. And my, I, nobody said Facebook and I'm not addicted to it, I swear, but you have to make sure that you keep some of the profiles of those people that say horrible things so you know who to walk around and not be so welcoming to. Because I, I go by myself to racetracks. I go to upstate New York. I go to California. I go to Alabama. I go to Florida. And I just have to be a smart New Yorker, right? Can't walk around looking at the big buildings. I got to make sure that I'm doing my job, doing it well, representing the things that I want to represent well, both in my profession and my personal life, and then just making sure I know who I'm safe around. Some of the things that people have said have really surprised me. I've been friends with people for years and years, and it makes me very, very sad, very sad that that's the way that they've chosen to express themselves. And then, and then I've had the Pence campaign ask me to make him an earpiece. I know, look, Jonathan, I saw that face. <laughs> yes. So I believe I opened a business to serve all the people that I'm supposed to serve. So I would not say no, that I'm going to stand by that. I don't appreciate what he stands for, any of his family stands for. I've taken care of the brother. 
but I wouldn't hurt them. <laughs> I would be an ethical audiologist. I would not bring up my political stance there, although some of you might disagree with me. Um, but I, I just, I started my business to, to do better for people, all people. So I would say those are my two hard things. Otherwise, I don't think it's really affected me that much. And I don't know if that just comes from my New York, just to keep going. Like I'm not a sensitive person, so you can't be, right? So yeah, but different, very different. Yep. Kyle, did you have anything to add? Well, I feel um, validated by many of her statements. Um, I am someone who came out like in 2017, so not too far away. Um, and I feel like I lost, we all lost a year or two from the pandemic. Um, so it feels really fresh and moving to a rural place like Indiana where um, I kind of do feel that sense of um, I need to be careful uh, about who I share what with. Um, patients, they all live here. I live close by. So um, I do think about that, especially, um, so for example, I like to go running. It's very beautiful. Living in rural Indiana, you get some nice scenery, very refreshing. Um, but then I think like, am, are, what are these people gonna see? Like when I have a date or uh, things like that. So definitely something that you always keep in the back of your mind and um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that's interesting that both Dawn and Kyle, you touched on it, that audiology, we we have to serve all. You know, we um, we work with the general public. We have no say over who is put in front of us. And we have to have sort of monitor our own behavior and reactions. Um, and we generally work with a population that, you know, skews older traditionally. And I do think this um, idea of disclosure really comes into play of how much do we share with, with one, uh, with a patient. And um, something that seems uniquely audiology to me um, compared to other healthcare professionals um, is how much personal information audiologists disclose to build rapport with the patient, especially hearing aid patients. I don't know if it's because you're seeing them so frequently and the appointments are long, but um, there is a lot of personal information that's shared. And um, is that just my experience or have you all noticed that from, from those that are patient facing? Um, and do you think your ability to not disclose everything or have to sort of navigate what you're going to disclose has affected your ability to um, relate with patients or build a patient relationship? You know, working in industry, I have the luxury of not necessarily always having to follow up with patients. So I get to leave and, um, and walk away. But I have found that, you know, while I was working in clinic that, you know, I also don't want to let my bias judge a lot of my patients. You know, I, I was lucky to work in a uh, pretty liberal and accepting area. So most people, um, you know, wouldn't bat an eye at me coming out or um, mentioning that I have a wife or a girlfriend or, or anything like that. Um, but I have been in those clinics where, you know, I wouldn't feel as comfortable, but I also, like I said, I don't want to let my biases of, you know, seeing somebody and judging them and what they might say to me, um, get in the way of really being my true self, because, you know, we do, 
disclose a lot about our personal lives. Our patients ask us about our personal lives because we ask them about theirs. You know, we have to know what they do day in and day out in order to give them, you know, the services that they really need um, and to help them the best we can. So um, I've found that a lot of times, you know, talking a little bit about my identity um, has been actually pretty helpful in, in gaining that trust with a lot of patients. Henry, you're only a little bit removed from from clinic life. Um, how did you toe that line of disclosure? And did you find it problematic of how much personal information patients want to know about their audiologist? Oh, I definitely find that a little, it, just for my, even I think, person, even regardless of status, it's just like, I don't want to share this with you. Um, but, you know, I did my externship in a female body, but I looked at that time, gender nonconforming. And I was shocked the number of people who asked if I had at that time a boyfriend in a hetero relationship. And I was like, this is interesting. And it was in Columbus, Ohio at a VA. So like, you know, kind of Trump's America. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I just did. And so, you know, it was amazing the the lines, you know, the, the people had of like, you know, gay people don't exist. And I was like, uh, all right. So, but I don't feel comfortable telling you that I have a partner of the same sex at that time. Right. And now, like, to be honest, I don't necessarily, I haven't come out to anyone. Like I, when I was practicing as, you know, a trans guy, like it was one of those, like, what do you say? Like, Oh, Hey, by the way, I'm trans too. Like, you know, like I, I felt like it, I didn't have that opportunity, but also because I could kind of toe that line. It, I think, I tried to make it as welcome as, as possible. And so it did allow to have better relationships, but yeah, it definitely feels weird of like what I'm asking and what they're asking of me didn't always line up. Jonathan, you don't have much um, clinical exposure, although you do see study subjects. I, do they I ask do. about your life? I mean, so I guess to put things in perspective, you know, when I see patients and sometimes I follow them, over the course of, of a year or, and, um, you know, I end up seeing them for like three to five hours at a time. So there's a lot of talking and I don't, I don't, I don't hold anything back. You know, I'm really lucky. Um, you know, I have pictures of my partner and I on my desk and people often ask like, Oh, who's that? And, um, and it, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I remember, but I will tell this story. Um, and this was, this is sort of the paradox of, of living, living as a gay man. Um, and also, you know, coming from a small town in the Midwest, um, that I had a patient once that, you know, I worked with her, I don't know, quite a few times and it didn't occur to me that, you know, she was a pediatrician or whatever. And she goes, Oh, do you have kids? And it like shocked me. And I said, Oh God, no. Um, but it shocked me because she was a pediatrician and knows that gay people have kids. Like that's, that's where she was coming from, but I was coming from like, what do you think I'm straight? And, um, you know, so I think that sometimes we, I can even misperceive somebody's comment, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know me. I'm, I can be my, my full authentic self. I think with patients, um, for the most part, you know, for the most part. Yeah, I um so I I now have a uh 3-month-old son and the 
very confusing conversation of having to tell patients that I'm going out on maternity leave, but uh, no, I didn't give birth. My wife did was just a whole whopper of a coming out for some of my patients and their heads were spinning. So it is, um, it's a lot to navigate, even in New York city. Sometimes that was, that, that, that confused a lot of my 90 plus patients. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And when you think about the building of rapport of, you know, they rely on us giving personal information because we are asking them for personal information. Um, how do you think we can make a more inclusive and, um, uh, you know, compassionate um, environment so our patients are signaled that this is a safe space, you know, of bringing their, uh, their, their partner or their spouse to an appointment or talking openly about their communication partner. What do you think audiology can do? Just be open to using the right language, I guess, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that a nice little key? Mm -hmm. It matters. Yeah, of even using just partner or spouse rather than the heteronormative language. Anything else that we think would signal good care for? This is also just a PSA for other audiologists out there. I know that this is not obviously applicable everywhere, and that that saddens me. But, um, you know, there's one person on this podcast that has pronouns um, listed in their in their in their little box. And, um, you know, it's very, very common in NYU now to list this in your email. Um, and I guess it would shock me if somebody's not accepting that would list their pronouns. Why would they do that? Um, but it's a very, very welcoming, friendly um, saying like, this is, this is our safe space. Um, and I know that, you know, I've, I've introduced myself to patients before and they even tell me their pronouns, just basically telling me like, it's okay that you're gay. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like <laughs> he, him. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so think like little bitty nuanced things like that. And I don't, I don't know that, you know, let's, let's be blunt. I don't know that you can do that in Ohio. I don't know that you can do that in Texas. Um, you know, but it's definitely a step. I mean, I would say, so as a trans person walking into a healthcare facility, you're kind of walking in knowing that you're going to war in a little bit, you know, especially when my name didn't line up with whatever I looked like and gender markers. And, you know, there's a huge flux, influx, you know, flux of who am I and what in legally, not legally, whatever. And I would say rainbows were like a pretty big indicator, though they've gotten a little popular to where it's like you might be kind of an ally or think you're an ally, but you're really not informed. So like, that's a problem. But like in general, I have a, a shot, I feel like of like having maybe the right name and not having like a Bible thrown at me. So rainbows are good. And I think, you know, the email thing and, and signatures with your pronouns, I think in general, like, it's just great, especially like if you're talking to an Alex, I don't know if you're a male or a female, like, and so you don't want to, especially if you're going to go meet them, then you're just like, oh, shocked, like, oh, gosh, I don't know. I didn't. That's not what I thought. Or sometimes it's Sandy or, you know, whatever, like it just helps. Right. So I, I think those are very good points. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, I just think we need better education in our grad programs and continuing education that have all of this stuff like where it's you know kind of a go to of this is what happens when a person comes in with these pronouns or like has a different name. And it, we shouldn't rely on like the institution of a hospital to teach that to someone. 
Yes. I, I think that, you know, just kind of educating about the right language to use, you know, everybody just kind of getting used to using, you know, non-conforming language until you know for, you know, you, until you know somebody's pronouns or you know if this, you know, patient who's a child don't ask for mommy and daddy, you know, ask what their, who their parents are or what their, you know, kind of being more general like that. But also uh, I can't tell you how many times when somebody is, you know, made a misstep uh, and then suddenly they're apologizing. Oh my, apologizing. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just thought, and they go on and on and on. And then suddenly I'm apologizing to them. Um, that is something that just drives me nuts. Um, so I would say also, if you know, we're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. Um, just swiftly kind of just say, thank you for correcting me and, and move on. Um, I think that's a, a big thing that can help uh, make everything much more comfortable for everyone as well. Yeah, we, uh, well, I don't know about everyone else, but in trans world, we call that a cis funeral when that happens. And it's just annoying, you know, like we get it. You messed up. Stop making it about you now. Let's move on. Any more parting thoughts? I I really like this part of the discussion, actually. And Henry had such a great, um, you know, kind of pinpoint thing. And, you know, not that, you know, obviously we teach at CUNY adjunctly, but, you know, bringing this up early on in education, because it's not, you know, gender is not binary you know, it's not the traditional thing anymore. And I think that, you know, as a healthcare provider, you can choose to be a healthcare provider and care for everyone or not. And, um, you know, you may not agree with it. That's okay. But the, but the world is changing and it's going to change no matter what. So um, I know that, you know, all the medical records at NYU all, you know, have multiple pronouns, um, and, but, you know, I've been, so I work with NIH a lot. And so I'm waiting, I'm waiting on the updated demographics to come piling, to like come through because we have to, you know, and there may be a lag, but I know it's coming. I know that it's coming. Um, so, and I think it's a very positive thing. Yeah. And I mean, I don't necessarily know your role, Jonathan, but it's so, it was so interesting when I hear and have this conversation with other audiologists, they're like, well, what about this? It'll be, it, it eventually comes down to like, what if they have otosclerosis? I need to know that their gender, like what were they born at birth? And it's like, do you really, like, are you actually diagnosing that? No, you would be going and seeing an ENT. As an audiologist, we are treating that profession, like treat, treating this, the hearing loss or the dizziness or whatever it is. And in general, it has absolutely nothing to do with what you were assigned at birth. And if it does, you're probably working on a hospital setting and you would have access to that anyway. So I don't care about OAEs. I don't care about the, you know, NAL and L2 might have a gender norm. Well, you know what? That's actually going to be based on the person and their brain that they are in now, which is the gender that they are presenting at. And if they're non-binary, NAL and L2 needs to come up with something. But at the end of the day, like, it was just kind of like, why is this going to be the hill you die on audiology? That we need to know this because we might have a one case. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. We just need to be open and just treat the person as they come in. That's all we have to do. And that's a great note to end on. Um, <clears throat> thank you all for joining me. I, this was clearly just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we had a lot of ground to cover because this is sort of uncharted territory. Um, and certainly there's a whole lot more to explore for all of you. Um, 
as audiologists and your expertise. And I hope all of you get that platform um, to be highlighted in that manner because what all of you are doing is fascinating work for audiology. Um, and thank you also for partaking in the discussion about LGBTQ plus identity and audiology and how the two intersect with your careers. Um, I hope this has been informative for the audiologist listeners. Um, and again, thank you all so much and have a happy pride.